Welcome to the Virtual Word Rounds, a surgery podcast that helps you answer those burning questions you never had a chance to ask by the bedside. Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Virtual Word Rounds podcast. I am your host for today, Rosie, and as usual, I'm joined by General Surgeon Sergey. Welcome, Serge. How are you today? Very good, Rosie. Excited about today's episode. So today we are going to continue our conversation about fluid management and discuss the somewhat complex but very important topic of electrolytes. If you haven't already listened to our episodes on the basics of fluid resuscitation and maintenance, now would be a very good time to hit pause and go back and listen. To begin, let's just get a few basics down. What exactly is an electrolyte? I'm going to have an attempt at answering this, and Serge, you can jump in if I miss something. But my understanding is that an electrolyte is basically a charged particle in our bodies. They are very important to think about in conjunction with fluid management because electrolytes are usually dissolved in bodily fluids, which means that when you lose or gain fluids, you're probably going to end up with an electrolyte disturbance. Does that sound about right? Is that how you think about electrolytes? I'm a surgeon, so whatever <laughs> you are thinking about electrolytes, I'm thinking about 10 times less complex. So electrolytes is whatever's dissolved in your blood, which is not protein or sugar. Excellent. That's a really nice, simple way to think about it. And, and, the, and there's a lot of things dissolved in your blood, and it's incredibly complex. Um, and the relationship between different electrolytes and your fluid volume, intracellular, extracellular, total body volume, and so on, is very complex. It is well and truly beyond the capacity of my understanding, and it's not something that we deal with every day. So the electrolyte management for me as a general surgeon is going to be fairly basic. I need to know things that I can fix, and I need to know things that I can't fix and I need to look for help for. So that's how I approach my electrolytes. And we've covered some things already. We've covered um, uh, fluid resuscitation. We've mm -hmm. covered maintenance fluids and requirements for uh, potassium and sodium. And we've covered uh, high potassium and low potassium. And those are very, very important. Those are things that we focus on. Today, we're going to be talking about the rest. All the rest, <laughs> nice all and All the simple. rest, all the rest. And, and there's a lot. And so we're not going to go into any particular detail. So I think we're going to provide uh, just an overall understanding of things, focus on a couple of important causes and treatments. Uh, but again, this is not something that neither me or you are going to be experts on. So please Absolutely. make sure that you do some of your reading on top of whatever we're going to tell you as well. Very important caveat. So. Serge, you've just raised a really good point, and that is that this is a really complicated, you know, very specialized area of medicine. And to me, it sounds very medical. You know, we're talking about things that are dissolved in the blood and and um, keeping them in balance. So, why is this? Why are we talking about this on a surgical podcast? Why are electrolytes important in surgery? Why do you care about them? <laughs> I don't necessarily agree that electrolyte uh, management is a, is a medical uh, thing only. We do have um, a significant number of surgical patients that present with electrolyte disturbances uh, and not just due to underlying medical conditions. So we have patients with surgical conditions that present with significant electrolyte disturbances and not just hypovolemia due to sepsis. You get 
potassium disturbances, as we've discussed in the previous episode. Um, you can have uh, a classical example that you always get asked about is hypokalemic, hypochloremic alkalosis in patients with gastric outlet obstruction. But you also get patients with trauma and brain tumors that can present either with SIADH uh, or, or diabetes insipidus. Uh, hypercalcemia is another very, very surgical topic, uh, classically due to uh, hyperparathyroidism, whether it's primary, secondary, tertiary. So there's definitely a lot of surgical pathologies that manifest or present with electrolyte disturbances, and we know about them and we can manage them. It's when it gets really complex, when you have heart failure, liver failure, lung cancer, and you have uh, a, a bizarre and wonderful electrolyte disturbance uh, or something that is critical um, and the patient is symptomatic from it, that's, that's when we will be calling for help. But basic stuff we should, we should know, we should be aware of, and we should be aware of our limitations and being able to call for help appropriately. The classic example that I was thinking of in surgery is somebody who's had a lot of um, fluid loss because of vomiting or diarrhea, but you've also just flagged that there are some other, there are some other surgical conditions, you know, tumors, thyroid problems that can lead to electrolyte disturbances as well. So it's quite complex is what I'm trying to say. And there are different levels um, and layers to electrolytes that a surgeon is thinking about what electrolytes do you care the most about, would you say? You know, is it potassium number one? Uh, are there some that you don't worry about at all or is it they're all equally important? Uh, so potassium is number one because it is the most common to get disturbed. Um, and, uh, and, and it is quite dramatic when it, when it goes out of whack. And we've discussed in the previous episodes that the, the classical is a young patient with a rhabdomyolysis or, or burns patient with potassium going up through the roof. That is actually quite dangerous. Uh, some electrolytes, so you, you have calcium, magnesium, phosphate, or the CNPs. Uh, we, magnesium is not something that I routinely correct and, unless the patient has cardiac uh, issues. Uh, we, same goes for phosphate. Uh, it, it is more of a marker of uh, patient's overall state of nutrition and uh, it usually corrects itself when the patient is able to eat and drink. Uh, calcium is a little bit different. It's fairly important, and it's, uh, it's a very important neurotransmitter, uh, and even small variations in calcium uh, can be uh, symptomatic. However, treatment of the underlying causes is usually the, the way to go forward with calcium, but you can also replace it or dilute it or, or reduce it in, in the acute setting. I guess the, the, the most important electrolyte that we'll be talking about today is, is sodium. Um, mm -hmm. And it is also probably the most complex electrolyte because it is tightly bound with the volumes of water in your body. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not going to go into the detail of the physiology and relationship to the, to the volumes of water. We probably should just go over a couple of classical surgical examples uh, and leave the rest uh, to the experts. Absolutely. So why don't we start with some classic examples of, of um, surgical cases that result in hypo or hypernatremia. First of all, are there some surgical conditions that you know are going to put your patient at risk of hypo or hypernatremia? 
So when it when it comes to sodium uh, homeostasis, a lot of things affect it. Uh, the the number of causes for hyper and hyponatremia are just absolutely vast, uh, from drugs uh, to renal to kidney um, uh, problems, uh, central brain problems, trauma, uh, sepsis, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's a whole bunch of those things. Uh, when it so for me to be able to simplify it and 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 to be able to understand it a little bit better. I think about sodium, basically you either have too much sodium or too little in relationship to the amount of water you have in the body. Uh, so if you have too much water, but normal sodium, then you're going to have low sodium. If you have too much sodium and too little water, you're going to have hyper Sorry to interrupt you. I just think that's a really important point to flag because it's something that I remember being quite confused about is that when we're talking about electrolytes, we are actually talking about concentration of those electrolytes, right? Not just the total amount of that electrolyte in your system. The example you just gave is that you can have hyponatremia when you have excess fluid. So the total amount of sodium in your body is normal, but because there's so much extra fluid, it's diluted to a point where it's actually abnormal. And is that the case with all electrolytes or is it just some of them where the concentration matters? I think it's, I thought it was all of them, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong there. Uh, no, I think you're right. I think for majority of the electrolytes is going to be the concentration in some electrolytes also are bound to protein in your bloodstream. So for example, for example, for calcium, calcium is bound to albumin in your bloodstream and the, the concentration of ionized calcium is what is important. So in mm. a setting of a low albumin state, your overall concentration of calcium is going to be low, but your ionized calcium may be perfectly normal. I see. That's um, really interesting. Yeah, sodium, potassium are free ions, and they float around uh, in in your bloodstream, completely um, unencumbered. Uh, the other interesting situation where you can get um, low uh, sodium is in states of, for example, hypertriglyceridemia, so high lipid states, uh, and that's simply because the machines um, are not able to measure. Uh, the volume correctly because proteins occupy the volume of fluid that is being measured, if that makes any sense. Ah. Uh, and, and this is called pseudo-hyponatremia. So if you spin it down and you separate the proteins from the, from your, from, from the fluid, the concentration of your sodium may be perfectly normal, but because you have high protein, in, in your blood due to abnormality in, uh, in your uh, protein homeostasis, uh, or another case would be in high sugar load states as well. In, in, in diabetes with, say, BSL of 25 up, you can get low sodium readings on the machine, even though your sodium may be perfectly normal within, within your blood. The, the point here is that there's a lot of things, there's a lot of factors that's going to affect uh, your sodium. Uh, and as far as the uh, causes for low sodium, uh, we're going to be talking about dilutional, yep. uh, which is you know or iatrogenic. 
So uh, someone is going to get a lot of uh, fluid, which is going to be hypotonic, which contains low concentrations of sodium, uh, and, or, and or people that drink a lot of water, for example, people that are thirsty because they've got some kind of sepsis or, they, um, or marathon runners or people that have taken M- MDMA. <laughs> uh, so they they would they would overload themselves with with uh, just plain water and cause dilutional hyponatremia. Uh, and the other the other situation would be, uh, which is a lot less common but is also fairly surgical, would be in a, a situation of SIADH, uh, which stands for syndrome of inappropriate ADH secretion. A- ADH is an antidiuretic hormone, so that um, retains water and therefore dilutes sodium. sodium. Mm. And what about hypernatremia? Is that something that as a surgeon you deal with at all, very often? Uh, Hypernatremia is uh, a lot less common in my experience, uh, but it can also happen. And normally it happens due to dehydration. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But um, the important cause here. Uh, would be due to a diabetes insipidus, and that can be either uh, central or nephrogenic. So with something like hyper or hyponatremia, um, as a treating doctor, are you waiting to see if signs and symptoms develop or are you monitoring this more proactively? Yeah, so electrolyte testing is fairly routine uh, and we do it uh, daily or every second day in our inpatients. So we're constantly looking at electrolytes. And the idea is to pick the electrolyte disturbance and correct them before they become symptomatic. In the setting of, for example, sodium, uh, sodium normal range is approximately between 135 to 145 millimoles per liter. Um, and it's not uncommon to see patients uh, with uh, something like 129, 128 millimoles per liter of sodium. That, that's, that's when you may decide to have a look at this patient a little bit closer, uh, see what fluids they're running, um, what volume of urine they're putting out. Are they, do they have any other medical or surgical problems that contribute to that? Um, and maybe check your sodium again the following day and just see which way it's trending. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and if and if it is continues to trend lower, then you will need to investigate that and act on it. Symptoms of hyponatremia do not start until your sodium gets critically low. So less than 120, definitely, uh, probably closer to 115, 110. But by that time, this patient is going to be quite profoundly unwell. Um, and you can look up the symptoms of uh, hyponatremia, but it's essentially neurological depression Mm. and replacing sodium for that patient or correcting sodium for that patient is going to be a lot more challenging because uh, rapid correction uh, results in neurological problems, which can be permanent. Uh, And the classical example here is um, a young person with head trauma um, in observation in hospital suddenly goes into a seizure or a fit, and they get checked their electrolytes and they found that their sodium is 110. So they get treated with large volumes of hypertonic saline. Their sodium recovers, 
but they develop central demyelination and they essentially brain dead. Mm. That has happened before. It is a horrible, horrible situation to be in. And it's definitely something that, you know, we, we, we need to avoid in the future. So um, those sorts of extremes, if you notice them on a patient, I understand that you really are watching the trends and monitoring them closely so that you don't end up with, with sodium of 110. But in that situation, if you did suddenly have a patient with extreme uh, derangement, would, would that be when you're calling ICU or, or calling somebody for help? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This uh, patient with uh, sodium of 110 uh, should be closely monitored. Their electrol, their sodium needs to be corrected, but it needs to be corrected carefully. Before correcting the sodium, we need to investigate the patient. And usually for hypo hypernatremia, what what you what you're trying to do is you need to compare um, the os- sodium osmolality uh, in the blood and compare it to the total and sodium osmolality in your urine. Usually, if they do not correlate, if they're not in the same direction. Uh, then it's 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 abnormal. It's either going to be SIADH or, in the case of high sodium diabetes insipidus, um, but that can be treated with special medications. I see. So it's okay? not just in addition in addition to sodium replacement. Yeah, treating the underlying cause. That's right. Treating treating the underlying cause. But the important thing here is that you can correct this uh, um, electrolyte abnormalities, but you need to correct them carefully and slowly as well. So in the case of hyponatremia, uh, correcting the so- correction of sodium should not be faster than one millimole per hour uh, and no more than eight to 10 millimoles per day. Okay. You're jumping into my next question. Too, too, too good at predicting what we're, where we're going here, Serge. But that's actually a really good point that I wanted to stress. And you've mentioned it for... Um, sodium, but I assume it's true for other electrolytes as well. And that is that um, a really important takeaway for medical students and junior doctors is that you can't just rapidly infuse somebody with whatever it is they are lacking. There's always a rate of infusion that is safe hourly, daily, and you also need to consider um, side effects of replenishment. And maybe you need to talk to ICU if it is quite severe. I guess what I'm trying to say is this isn't just a simple thing to correct. You do want to be mindful of how quickly you're doing it um, and how much you're giving someone for all electrolytes. That's correct. But each electrolyte has got its own unique, different reason for why you don't want to do it this way or Mm. another. I mean, I'll give you an example. Magnesium is can be given as a bolus without too much hassle. It's a stabilizing agent. It doesn't it doesn't hurt. Calcium gluconate can also be frequently given fairly quickly. However, with potassium, you can't. Right. So each one is different. If you push a load of uh, potassium into the bloodstream, your heart is going to go into an acute arrhythmia. Now, it's not it's not necessarily the same with sodium. Sodium does not directly affect the cardiac muscle. So the the person is not going to suddenly stop breathing or the heart stop working if you give them a high volume of sodium. Uh, But because sodium is so tightly linked with water, what you're going to do is you're going to create a hyperosmotic compartment in your extracellular volume. Your intracellular fluid is going to be hypo osmotic and so you're going to get massive fluid shifts across mm. so things are going to swell 
And mm. some things can't swell very much. A good example of that is going to be the brain. Okay, so you're going if you if if your brain swells to a certain you know to a certain limit, it's going to herniate and it's going to cause big big problems. We don't want to do that. Um, central pontine demyelination uh, is another specific side effect of rapid correction of hyponatremia. Um, happens again, as I told, as, as I said before, very, very rarely, but when it happens, it's a big problem. It's mm. definitely is something that we need to keep an eye out on. So the short answer to my next question, which was, um, are there, are there side effects to electrolyte administration is that yes, there are complications that can happen if they're given too quickly. If you give too much of them, uh, are there side effects for electrolyte administration? If you're just giving the right amount like are we going to see any change in the patient apart from return to normal so in a setting of for example hyper or hypocalcemia where the symptoms occur a little bit sooner um, and patients can actually present symptomatic you know with this with a hypocalcemia you're going to get all of those true sores and quostex signs and and i've actually seen one uh, relatively recently i had a young patient that i was doing a procedure on a hand. Uh, and when the tourniquet went up, um, that arm went into a carpopedal spasm. Oh, interesting. But that was, but that happened because the, the, the patient um, was hyperventilated before the anesthetic induction. And during hyperventilation, um, you can blow out the CO2 from your blood and cause transient but significant hypocalcemia. Oh, interesting. I guess the point the point of that is you can have patients coming in with signs of either hypo or hypercalcemia. And do you remember the signs for high calcium, Rosie? You remember the mnemonic for it? Is this the the grown stones, thrones, and moan something like that <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right that's right so it's so it, it goes like this stones painful yes. bones abdominal moans, moans and psychic and psychic overtones that's right i of, thought there was something about thrones don't you you get constipated so you sit on on the throne for a long time oh no, well that's that's another <laughs> one that's a new one but uh yeah look uh, i'll i'll take that as well so everything <laughs> with owns is uh, yeah. is a sign of hypercalcemia but uh, you you do get that you do get that and classically uh in your inpatients um uh, the most common thing is going to be cancer um and you can be uh, asked to see or, or or renal failure, so you get you get you know tertiary or secondary hyperparathyroidism. In your outpatient population, the the, the vast majority of high uh, calciums are going to be due to um, hyperparathyroidism. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and when you correct that, when you either reduce their high calcium or correct their low calcium, their symptoms do go away. When it comes to sodium, if if it is critically low, then you can get neurological signs. But at the level that we normally correct them at, which is, you know, before they become symptomatic, you're not going to see much change in their Absolutely. overall yeah. you know, appearance. Because you're monitoring based on their 
on their bloods, not so much their symptoms. That's right, because because they are closely monitored uh, yeah. and, and we correct things before they become dangerous. Uh, and same applies for, for potassium. You you want to correct your potassium before it affects your cardiac muscle function. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That, that was all the questions that I had. Uh, that's actually not bad. It's a little bit more basic than I intended it to be because we didn't talk about um, any of the specifics. But I think uh, we mentioned the important things. I think for this level, having that um, those basic principles of like, yes, this is important. You need to monitor in the bloods, like you need to treat carefully, you need to know when to call for help is actually some of the stuff that, you know, if they've got that down pat and then if we want to get someone in to talk about the ins and outs of, you know, magnesium deficiency later, I guess we could do that. But um, we just don't get a lot of that simple stuff. We really don't. And it's quite, um, there's a lot of assumptions about how much we already know. So I think this will be quite a useful episode for people. Yeah, look, I hope I hope so. I, I think uh, I, um, electrolyte homeostasis is 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 a is a vast topic. And when you get um, a complex patient, you know your liver failure causes a lot of uh, derangement in your sodium, potassium, and and other electrolyte disturbance and acid base disturbance. We haven't even mentioned acid base, and I'm not going to go into that. Yeah, this this was uh, an intro some basic foundation stuff, make sure you go and do your extra reading and listen to your lectures for all the detailed info that you'll need. And I thank you so much for sharing all of your insights today. I certainly learned a lot and I hope that our listeners did too. Thank you. Virtual Board Rounds is available wherever you get your podcasts. For updates, follow us on Instagram and Twitter or to send your thoughts, queries, concerns, comments, You can also email us at virtualworldrounds at gmail.com. Until next time, happy studies.